What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, into the blue again after the money's gone. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, uh... You know, I think it's been about 15 minutes since we talked about 3D printers. So guess what we're going to do today? Talk about 3D printers? But in a different way than we ever have before. Right. We're not just talking about how they could be transformative uh, for multiple industries. We're really focusing in on this episode, right? Right. We wanted to talk about 3D printers and art. So this week's video is about the future of art generally. And one of the most interesting ways that the future of technology is already influencing and will continue to influence the future of art is digital fabrication in general and 3D printing specifically. Right. So now we have this ability to have a machine to uh, to create three-dimensional objects layer by layer, something that uh, makes it you know, relatively simple to build relatively complex objects 
it's something where, you know, with the additive manufacturing approach, we often say this is different from subtractive manufacturing where you have to cut away or carve away material until you get what you want. Well, that's the basis for things like sculpture, right? Where you're, you're taking for at least some forms of sculpture where you're taking some raw material and cutting away stuff until you are left with whatever the artist has envisioned within that, that block O stuff. And if you're taking this <laughs> other approach where you're building from the ground up, where's the place in art? Does it have a place in art? Oh. Does the fact that it's a 3D printer make mean that it shouldn't be in art ever? I would argue that the, the 3D printer is just an art tool. And that, I mean, the same the same way that you're still using your learned skill and talent and imagination in order to create a sculpture in the traditional way. Oh, you you are some sort of free thinking radical. Lauren. I know. Yeah, hold how? on. L- let me play the uh, the angry person who <laughs> okay. wants things to be how they've always been. Okay, right. I it, want Joe. things to be how they've always been. Well put. Artists Joe. are supposed to, <laughs> you know, when you make a sculpture, you're supposed to hit a piece of rock with a piece of metal until you can see a face in it, and then you're supposed to wait a few thousand years until it has no arms and right. uh, it's, maybe its head breaks off. Right. Or maybe people decide to remove certain parts because it no longer fits their aesthetic and they think that the naughty bits have got to go. Yeah, that could be one thing. Yeah. that That's how it should be. I don't like the idea of using machines and computers to make art. It just seems wrong well, because technology has never been part of art in the past, has it? Now, Joe, that's an entirely different podcast. Let's focus specifically <laughs> on 3D printers, shall we? Okay, <laughs> because... well, come on. How can you got to sell me on this idea? How can something that's made by a machine still be a human work of art? Well, a human is still designing the artwork. The machine didn't come up with the the way that this thing looks all by itself, you still have to tell it what to print out. I mean, so it's right. it's just instead of instead of taking away all the parts of the block of granite that don't look like David, you're really just adding in all the parts that do look like David. Yeah. So, so Joe, let me ask you a question. OK. Uh, if I were to hand you a a typed manuscript uh, or a printed manuscript of a novel I had written, would you argue that the printer, in fact, was the device that wrote that piece of work? Are you asking me or are you asking the angry guy who wants things to be how they've always been? Well, Ang- even angry <laughs> I think even the well, angry guy. E- okay, yeah. Even the angry guy who wants things to be how they've always been is used to 2D printing by now yes. and sees that as a perfectly valid way of producing a work of fiction, say. Yes. So, in other words, this 3D printer, while it's creating a three-dimensional object, it is, like you were saying, Lauren, it is a manifestation of a design that a human has created. It still requires artistry and skill to create these virtual models that eventually get printed into three dimensions. Uh, skill, which perhaps not angry Joe, but regular Joe is certainly aware of from recent times of trying to play around with a 3D printer and getting it to do your will. Oh, yeah, it's maybe not as easy as you would guess. <laughs> right. And that's just printing, you know, some some fairly basic uh, shapes that you have altered in tiny ways. Imagine creating an, an entire shape from scratch that you are just you, you have envisioned what this thing is going to look like once it is eventually completed and then making sure you're working within the parameters of the 3D printer's abilities. You know, Physical some, capacity. Yeah, exactly, sure. yeah. Some 3D printers don't have very high resolution. So that means you're limited in the shapes you can make uh, 
without having some sort of jagged edge to them. Now, granted, you could also incorporate jagged edges into your design. That might be part of the effect you're going for. Okay, so in any case, the creativity is still coming from the person. The 3D printer is just a tool. It's sort of like a chisel, except it's a very advanced chisel. Right. It's actually kind of an anti-chisel because you yeah. don't have to cut anything away. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. Um. So... Okay, maybe let's say I'm the angry guy who wants it to be how it's always been, and you've convinced me this far. I say, okay, okay, maybe it could be just as good as as a regular sculpture, uh, you know, a chisel, the old school way. Are there any ways that 3D printing or that computer-aided fabrication might actually allow us to do things that you couldn't do before? I, I came up with this example just off the top of my head. And really, the more I think about it, the more I really would love to see someone implement this. I personally... Actually, I think it has been. Awesome. I could be wrong. Awesome. But uh, go ahead. And maybe maybe it's even possible that I have seen this thing and I just don't remember it and that therefore it feels like I've come up with an idea, but really I'm just remembering what someone else has already done. Unconscious plagiarist. <laughs> it's, com- it's completely <laughs> well, this, possible. It happens. Yeah. I've seen a version of it, but go ahead and explain what you were thinking so of. So what I was thinking of was you take first a, a piece of software, you design a piece of software that can interpret sounds and based upon those sounds, create shapes. And so just imagine that any sort of hard consonant sound creates a, a geometric flat edge or, or a corner, that kind of thing. So that you have the, the sort of the 90 degree angles, stuff like that. Uh, then more vowel sounds or soft sounds create sort of curved surfaces. And then just imagine being able to speak a sentence, perhaps a 15 second long or 30 second long amount of uh, of speech into a recorder, which actually is, is quite a bit. A good Shakespeare quote. Yeah. And then this this software would then interpret those sounds and create the shapes based upon what the what sounds it caught and then send that to a 3D printer. So you get a physical manifestation of what it is you said based upon the algorithms that inform mm-hmm. the software. Right. Uh, the thing that I was thinking of was, well, A, sound wave jewelry, which is a thing that made some Internet headlines within the past, say, six months or so. Oh, cool. Um, where you can record like a word or a sentence and have it printed or or etched onto a piece of jewelry, like a, like a ring or something like that. So that's you can neat. you can wow. say I love you and have that printed onto your wedding band. Oh, that's, wow. that's um, really cool. And uh, and, and also that's just so the, sweet. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> um, or, or the, the kind of stuff that they're doing with some of the um, particle accelerator data art where they're looking at the way that things are bouncing around and they're sort of letting algorithms spin that out into these very beautiful. I haven't seen it done with 3D printing, but but very beautiful two dimensional uh, pieces of art, pieces of art. Yeah. yeah. So, so the neat thing is that just with a, you can just with a little imagination, you can uh, create something that would allow this sort of two dimensional manifestation become a three dimensional manifestation. Now, obviously, all of that is dependent upon the artist who decides how to design that algorithm. Right. The uh, algorithm is right. following did, rules. Oh, sure. The algorithm didn't create itself. An right. artist somewhere along the line has said, this is what you do. Yeah. When when X happens, do Y. And then you just make sure those rules are followed properly. And uh, then you get the artwork printed out. It means that everyone would have unique pieces of art. Even if two people said the same sentence, you know that the way they say certain words is going to be interpreted in different ways from a, with a machine. Unless they sound identical, you're going to get two at least subtly different pieces of artwork from it. Which to me, this this to me is an amazing idea 
that I wish I could implement, but I have very little in the way of artistic ability. <laughs> well, I love in general the idea of, of taking data and turning that into a new physical form of some kind. Uh, there are all kinds of ways to, I guess you would say, visualize, but you could also, I don't know what the word is, audioize. Any kind, mm -hmm. you can take data and turn that into a format that we can sense. Uh, yeah, we talked a little bit about that in our Future of Music episodes a while back. Right. And right. and some of the visualization projects that people are doing with, again, with some of the uh, uh, particle accelerator data or yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, but that so this could allow you to do this in three dimensions. Yeah. Um, so I want to come back to my angry guy who wants it to be how it's always been. OK, what else and, does angry guy have to say? Well, he's been convinced of a couple things that may, maybe it, it is just a legitimate tool. 3D printing is uh, maybe it can even do some things that a chisel can't do. Um, but what about the fact that. After I print one copy of this sculpture I've designed on a computer, I can just press print again, make another one, and then make another one, make another one. Yeah. And there's really no priority, you know? Yeah, that's a, yeah, as in you can't say that this printout version was the, the original, original and right. all others are a copy when, in fact, if you think about it, the original, the quote unquote original printout is itself. A, a physical copy. A physical copy of a digital representation, yeah. sure. Right. So when you go to buy a painting, obviously the original one that the painter painted is the worth best. way more than yeah. a print of that. Well, and not only that, but that the virtual file, the, the file that the printing is based off of, is itself replicatable. You can reproduce, a, you, you can copy a digital file infinite number of times to distribute it. So you can't even go back to saying, oh, this one file is the original and therefore it's the thing that has value. This is tricky, right? Unless you have either done something specific like in, like included the reproducibility as part of the artistic expression, mm -hmm. which is completely valid. You know, oh, sure, you, sure. Uh, create something that is itself a statement about reproducibility. Absolutely. Yeah. Or perhaps there's there may be cases where the artist ends up creating a virtual model, sends it to print. Once it's done printing, the artist might destroy that original file. And then you really do have one copy. One original. Yeah. Oh, that's a scary, scary thing to contemplate doing I think personally it would, it to would, me. I, I think it would all depend upon the artist and what the artist wanted to say, clearly. Oh, sure. Um, uh, but I, I, I would want to say to Angry Joe here that reproducibility is and always has been a huge part of and an issue in art. I mean, way before 3D printing ever existed. Okay. I mean, like, uh, for, for ages when students are first learning how to art, uh, that they'll sometimes <laughs> copy or more modernly, uh, trace work from established artists and and technology for creating replicas of art go back way to ancient times like coin stamps yeah or or molds for pottery or bronze a millennium or so after that we started creating wood cuttings that allowed for creating multiple prints of single images and and later um etched or engraved metal surfaces to improve the resolution of that kind of printing technology uh, and then you know lithography or photography which were both developed her photography Thank developed <laughs> yeah I, I appreciate that, you, that yeah. you not only made the pun but it's in the notes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she typed her i did i did typed her. her uh it, yeah no this, sorry those were those were both developed in the late 17 and or early 1800s right. and uh and then motion fell motion photography in the late 1800s and each of these technologies as they were created brought 
the possibility for for remote viewers to at least in some part experience seeing works of art that they might otherwise never have access to um, and, and also opened up new avenues for artists to make money, which I think we can all agree on as being a pretty rad thing, um, but unfortunately also did open the door to, to forgeries, mm-hmm. which kind of suck. And, yep. uh, and and according to some theory, also diluted the cultural value of viewing, a.k.a. participating in an original work of art, like Angry Joe is kind of implying. And by the way, if this if this is a topic that is of some kind of interest to you, this theoretical debate, I do highly recommend an essay called The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, which was written in 1936. I told <laughs> you people have been worried about this for a while by a German theorist by the name of Walter Benjamin. Um, 1936 was was during that dawn of what we know as the mass media today. And a lot of people in the arts were kind of freaking out about it. This concept of being able to reproduce through photography or film the experience of seeing something. Mm -hmm. And he argued that reproductions completely remove the, the aura or the authenticity of an original work of art. Furthermore, turn viewers from participants in art into passive consumers and furthermore allows kind of negative stuff like politics or war to be aestheticized in place of art. Mm, um, huh. And OK, so so that's all a little bit dire and also perhaps off topic from what we are talking about. But but I really wanted to just demonstrate that this has all been worried about before. All right. And and even though. These kind of technological advances did change the way that we interact with art and perhaps even the way that we participate in art. It did not, in fact, result in OMG, the end of all art as we know it. Right, right, right. I, I don't think the real me uh, agrees with angry me's <laughs> uh, objection about the reproducibility. I don't necessarily see reproducibility as a big stumbling block, maybe because I don't necessarily believe in the aura of an original piece of art oh it's 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 an interesting theory and i do think that the experience of going and seeing um a picasso or the mona lisa or a pyramid is a different experience than seeing a copy of any of those things or seeing it on a photograph or in film right but um, like like, like viewing viewing an original painting as opposed to viewing a print or viewing someone else's copy of that original painting even if it looks like it is faithfully reproduced. Mm-hmm. It, it, you can, you know, there is something interesting about that. If you were to ask someone, especially if they knowingly are viewing a copy, you know, th- how does this make you feel as opposed to knowing that the original of this is in some other museum far away? You know, there's something psychological there. It doesn't necessarily have to be imbued in the object itself. But there is something inside us that makes that different. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it does have to do with – I mean I'm not saying we literally believe in magic. But there is some <laughs> kind of idea of contiguous magic that, you know, sure. it's like, oh, this, uh, you know, piece of paper was really signed by your favorite celebrity. This was touched by that person. This was yeah. interacted. Some of their atoms are on that piece of paper. Well, that, yeah. I mean, like, for example, just recently, this this is also kind of a tangent, but just recently I went to Ireland and saw the Book of Kells. Oh, yeah. One of the one of the oldest uh, illuminated manuscripts in, in Europe and uh, particularly, I mean, in Ireland. And and it brought tears to my eyes to see this thing. Keep in mind, I was also a medievalist in college, so <laughs> it was very much near and dear to my heart. And I've seen countless 
replicas of this and, and, you know, representations of the artwork that's in that book. But it didn't have that emotional impact that seeing the real thing did. Oh, sure. Uh, but I would not say that the fact that those reproductions can be produced, period, uh, is taking anything away from the original. Absolutely. I agree with that. Absolutely. I think that uh, and in the sense of a 3D printed piece of artwork, I don't even know that if I even if I knew, hey, the artist could just hit print and make another one of these. I don't necessarily think that would take away my admiration for the skill it took and the artistry it took to design it in the first place. OK, but so all of this theoretical discussion aside, 3D printing art is a real thing mm -hmm. um, that is really happening. So let's talk about how that works. Uh, I, I would imagine, I have not done this myself, that uh, you can use a, a 3D scanner in order to make, for example, a reproduction of an artwork. Okay, so now you're not just a free-thinking radical. You're a free-thinking radical who wants to make forgeries of actual art. <laughs> I got you pinned here, Lauren. I see where this is going. But no, uh, you're but, correct. You can use 3D scanners to to replicate things like like existing pieces of artwork. Uh, sure, and or, not just replicate. Uh, right, to create your own. I mean, you know, if you were 3D scanning um, an arm in order to incorporate that into some kind of very weird Clive Barker kind of kind of. Like, 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 let's say that you wanted to produce a replica in some form of uh, Venus de Milo, but in, pl in place of normal human arms, which would have been there, but have since uh, been lost to us. Terminator arms. Or I was going to say tentacles, but sure, Terminator <laughs> claws. arms. Claws. Oh, crab claws. Oh, yeah. Oh, that'd be so great. You could totally do that. I would love it. Okay. <laughs> you, you, at home, you might be thinking, whoa, whoa, what? I've heard about 3D printing. What's the deal with 3D scanning? Well, 3D scanners are out there. They're a technology that's uh, uh, the sort of the counterpart to a 3D printer, the inverse, if you will. So a 3D printer takes a digital shape and it makes it physical. Yep. A 3D scanner samples a physical shape and makes it digital. So it's sort of like a camera, except what a camera does is gets a 2D picture. Yeah. Uh, a 3D scanner uses a variety of different ways to get a 3D picture. Now, what are the different ways that a 3D scanner could sample a physical object? Well, my favorite, of course, has to be lasers. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, laser, you use the laser line passing it over an object. This laser line has a, sort of a, a laser and a camera sensor together. And the camera sensor, what it's doing is it's recording 3D points in space. Essentially, any point where the laser makes contact with a physical object, that becomes a reference point for the virtual object that will be produced in a computer model. So these lasers are placed around the outside of the object and scan inward on it. Yeah, and you might have a device that allows you to, to just lower a physical array of lasers that scan the whole thing at once, or you might have to rotate the object or rotate the laser around the object and get several scans in order to get a full picture, a three-dimensional picture of this object. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of different implementations of this. Uh, laser line, patch, and spherical are all examples of methods to use lasers to, to scan a physical object. But basically, you're doing the same thing over and over again. You're creating these these floating 3D points in space that represent the surface of whatever the object is tends to be a pretty quick way to make a scan. It's also really good for stuff that's freeform and flowy, kind of organic, you know, the, the, the more rounded shapes of uh, 3d scanning is great for that kind of stuff. 
So there's another one that you're probably not going to see popping up in the art world much. This is going to be more an industrial use, but it's worth mentioning because yep. it is a way of 3D scanning, which would be CT scanning. Which uses x-rays. Yeah, this is what you would often get in a medical setting. Like if you go in for uh, computerized tomography, that's what mm-hmm. that stands for, mm-hmm. um, you will go into a room. And they will penetrate your soft, fleshy outer layers. With x-rays. With x-rays. Which do not. So good. They don't penetrate the hard tissue. So things like bone tissue, they're not going to penetrate. So, you know, you've probably seen, you may have actually had a a CT scan or you've probably seen at least a depiction of one. Uh, These are the ones that have like the donut, the the rounded uh, uh, chamber that can either move over a patient or the patient is actually on a platform that moves through this. The point being here that they use x-rays, which uh, you don't want to be exposed to for very long. Now, for patients, the x-ray dose you get in a typical scan is pretty low. Mm -hmm. So the risk of any adverse health effects is also very low. Oh, sure. They have the operators stand in other rooms because the sheer number of these things that they would be exposed to over the course of a day or a week or a lifetime in the field would in fact, be dangerous. Yes. So you would, you know, if you were wanting to use CT scanning for uh, 3D scanning purposes, it would obviously be something that you would need the right facility to use that without putting yourself at risk. Right. So this might be more often in an in industrial setting, say, to like analyze the structural performance of a part or a prototype or something like that. It's probably not something you're going to use in your house to scan your kid and then make your little action figure of your kid for your kid. Right. Now, Joe, I understand that there's possibly a way of scanning something in three dimensions using just kind of a simple camera approach. Not just possibly. There there are ways. You, Shut you can, your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> optical scanning. Uh, well, I guess lasers would probably also be optical scanning. Sure. But this would be standard optical scanning with a camera. Camera-based scanning. For real? Yes. Uh, I My guess is that this is fairly buggy, but I've never used it myself. So maybe it would surprise me. Uh, but it is real. You can use a camera on your phone in combination with a specialized app like uh, there's one app called 123D Catch. And what you do is you take photographs from many angles around the object in question. And so you like go in a circle around and take photographs from all the different angles. The yeah. app analyzes the photos and then creates a 3D model. In fact, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Met, actually encourages you to use this method to make digital copies of their holdings and modify them with your own 3D printing projects. So in other words, kind of like how a a, uh, DJ might remix various pieces of music to create something new, Mm -hmm. you could remix actual existing pieces of art. Yeah. uh, Well, I guess the one exception would be in the exhibits that are specifically labeled like no photography but well, i read sure, a little sure, yeah sure. i read a little statement from uh somebody at the met saying like oh yeah this is great wherever it's permitted in the museum do scan it. them up and go go home print them out do what you want and so crab claws yeah it's pretty cool. so many crab claws <laughs> there's and, and actually really cool also is that the met put a bunch of their pre-rendered scans of these exhibits up on the Thingiverse. It's a site that hosts downloadable 3D designs that you can get yourself. You just go up, download them, send them to your 3D printer. Yeah, th- this is, by the way, not that different from the way uh, the Connect scans things. We, I'll talk about a Connect hack a little bit later, but there yeah. are 3D scanners that specifically use infrared 
light and cameras in order to make a, a three-dimensional scan. Same basic idea as what we're talking about here, except instead of using the visible light that you know your typical camera relies upon, it's using infrared light, which is not visible to we puny mortal humans, but uh, some other animals can see it pretty well. Uh, anyway, it's the same basic premise as what is being talked about here. It's just using a, a different type of light, a different wavelength. Yeah. Uh, then, how, how about digitizing? So this is cool. So we've talked about using light and lasers and, and x-rays. All of these are electromagnetic means of looking at an object and, and getting a three-dimensional uh, model, virtual model. Digitizing is using contact. You're actually using something that's that's making contact with the physical object itself and running a probe over this object in order to get very precise readings of what that object, uh, how it's shaped, so that you can create a, an incredibly precise three-dimensional model of it. Now, this tends to be really good for geometric shapes that have a lot of flat surfaces, uh, hard angles, that kind of thing. It's less good for stuff that happens to have organic freeform shapes. I, I imagine that would be just the, the the onus of the probe operator to Yeah, to being able to to follow around that. contours. Yeah. It's 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 harder to do. You know, a flat surface is easier to define with a digitizer than something that is lumpy or has these these curves surfaces to it. So uh, uh you probably would want to use lasers or some other methodology for that. But for anything that has got, you know, flat surfaces, geometric shapes, this is a really, really precise means. And uh, depending upon what kind of uh, of object you're scanning and what purpose you're scanning it for, you may actually use a combination of these approaches to build your virtual model. So you may do a pass with a digitizer as well as passes with lasers in order to create as, as a, uh, as faithful a virtual replica as you possibly can for whatever thing you're trying to to replicate. Sure. Um, so there are actually a lot of these scanners out there on the market today, but a lot of them are very expensive. Well, how expensive is very expensive? Well, I found a, a list online of, uh, of a lot of the models that are sold. A good number of them were more than $20,000. That's a little dear. It's a little outside of my price range there, yes, Joe. Yes, certainly for the hobbyist artist, that's... Uh... But th there are cheaper ones out there. Um, in the, I believe like uh, MakerBot is working on one. They they've got the uh, the MakerBot digitizer. Sure. Uh, then of course there are hacks you can do to turn uh, objects like the Xbox 360 Connect this, into a scanner. This is really cool. Tell us about this. So yeah, uh, like I was saying, the the Connect it relies upon infrared sensors and cameras, right? So you've got an emitter that shoots out infrared, an infrared grid. Think of mm -hmm. it like think of a an overlay. That is uh, just a, a grid of infrared light. And any physical object that encounters that deforms that grid. And so by by measuring that deformation, the Kinect can determine what sort of object is standing there and when it's moving. This is what allows you to have that kind of movement-based gameplay. Uh, and in fact, in three dimensions, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's just like if you were to make a grid of strings and you then move that grid of strings against a physical object, that would deform that grid. And you could see how that was deformed, and that would define the three-dimensional object there, right? Yeah. Same sort of thing, except we're just talking about light. Uh, and it's light that you cannot see. Um, so anyway, 
imagine that you have this little grid and then you think, well, what if I just created some software that could uh, leverage this in a different way, not just for a way of, of recognizing a user or being able to uh, interpret a user's movement as commands for a game, but to actually scan the user or any other physical object. Well, that, there are a lot of people who have done this, including a kid who uploaded his approach on Instructables, and he just used stuff that was already out there and kind of created a, a guide of how you could do this yourself. And it was great, because I watched this video this kid made. I mean, the kid had to be... Uh, you know, pretty young, maybe 13, 14 years old, something along those lines. And he walks through step by step, explaining exactly what you need to do, how you can set up your Kinect. Uh, again, this is a 360 Kinect. The Xbox One Kinect is more locked down. It is less hacker friendly. Mm. But the 360 one had a lot of use that people have uh, have leveraged for various things, everything from digital puppetry to 3D scanners. And he demonstrated exactly how to do this, what drivers you needed to download, how to connect your connect to a PC so that you could upload the right software mm -hmm. and how you could then use it to capture three dimensional images. He even used himself as a model, sat ah. down, did two full rotations to try and get as accurate a model as possible. And then even said these these patchy parts we can fix in editing. So oh, wow. yeah. you know, even after mm -hmm. you are done, even if it's not a perfect three dimensional model, you can fix that in editing software. So it was really cool. It was a, and it was again, one of those things that anyone could follow. And the kid made it very understandable, very easy for you to, to do yourself if you have a three, 360 connected home. Uh, but if you wanted something a little bit more off the shelf, less DIY, there's an option for that too, right? There are plenty of them. Uh, yeah. the one that I, I have in our notes specifically is 3D systems sense scanner, S E N S E. Uh, scanner. And this one is another infrared scanner. So it's using the same basic technology as a Kinect. But this case, it's meant as a three-dimensional scanner specifically. And it's a little handheld unit. It kind of looks like something that you would see off Star Trek. You know, like you would want to scan the environment. Some kind of little wand sort of thing. Almost, yeah. yeah. I'm sure I could find this out if I looked it up, but I don't even know how that would work if it's handheld. I would think that the, the scanner would need to be stationary. Not at all. Wow. That's the that's the interesting thing is that's that cool. you can actually have this handheld scanner and you you wave it across whatever physical object you're trying to scan and the software itself can interpret those three-dimensional points and build that model and this would even allow you to scan fairly large objects like a motorcycle it Whoa. wouldn't even wouldn't even have to be something on a small scale. Wow. Um it does help if the object you're scanning is very 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 still. Huh, so sure. scanning a person would be a little more problematic than, say, scanning a table or a chair or a motorcycle. Uh, but it is pretty nifty. Now, it costs about $399, and um, it's something that is proprietary to the Cubify 3D printer. It's it's meant to work with one of those. So uh, that means that you're kind of locked down into what equipment you can use to to make this useful for 3D printing purposes. But it's still pretty cool. Yeah, okay. So let's try to imagine this whole process. Yep. Uh, so you, you want to get a Venus de Milo with a Jonathan Strickland head and crab claw arms. I mean, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want that in their living room or, you know, foyer? What What does the whole process look like? So I guess you take your handheld scanner. Right. 
to the museum. Yeah. Where where is the Venus de Milo right now? Right now? I don't know. I would She could I be know. anywhere. Yes, yeah, she she could be lurking around the corner. You're going to look that up for us, Joe? Hold on. Yeah, I'm going to find out. Okay. Oh, looks like it's the Louvre. Okay. Okay, so, that's, oh, okay. That's good. Assuming that she's not actually a weeping angel. Right. So assuming one that she's not a weeping angel and that two you are allowed to carry said handheld three dimen- three-dimensional scanner. Uh, into the Louvre and then uh, into to, her wing and yeah, into exactly. her exhibit. Yes. Let, let's let's assume you've got the full clearance to do this. So you would go to the Venus de Milo uh, sculpture and you would scan it thoroughly so that you've got a nice virtual model of it. Right. Then you would also need a three dimensional model of uh, you know my head. Yeah. So we'd scan your head and we. We'd scan some crab claws. Right. Mm-hmm. If you didn't want to create the virtual model of crab claws yourself, then you would scan some crab claws. Delicious crab claws. You yes. would pull all of these together in some form of computer-aided design program. Right. So you'd hook it up to your computer. And we've talked about CAD programs before, but basically they're, they're sort of, uh, for the 3D world, what Photoshop is to the 2D world. You right. Know, they let you manipulate 3D objects in, in a digital space, and you can do all kinds of reshaping and, right. and neat little tricks. You would yeah. need to obviously scale all three elements uh, properly so that you could fit them together for your three-dimensional model. Uh, right, because if you had tiny little crab claws on the Venus de Milo, that would be ludicrous. Or a, gi- <laughs> or a, or a ginormous Jonathan head. Yeah. That would be disturbing. Right. It's improperly scaled. Yeah, that would be horrible. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you don't, you don't want to have a super deformed Jonathan head Venus de Milo crab claw armed creation. That would okay, just be okay. ridiculous. So we get done with the final thing. We, no. We've combined them all into one file. And then basically you're about done. You yeah, just you need send it to print. Yeah. Well, you, you might need to go through one more step, which is uh, what's going to have to happen with some 3D printers is you're translating this object file like a .obj or a .stl. This yep. is the object file you edit into a file that is a direct set of instructions for your printer. Uh, perhaps a proprietary one, I would imagine, some of the printers deal with. Yeah, I think so. Sometimes. Would, it would so, really depend upon what scanner you were using, what what computer software aided, yeah, you were using and yeah. what printer. Yeah. yeah so yeah. there are some suites where you're going to be using a specific scanner, which in turn is going to determine what software you use, which in deter- which also works with a specific type of printer. And if everything is working within that same ecosystem, it's relatively simple to go from scan to virtual model to print. Yeah. Some others might mean that you have to do some conversion along the way, either from whatever file your scanner is creating or whatever file your uh, virtual software is creating to whatever files your printer will accept. Then there may be more work on your end depending upon that. But that's it. There you go. Yeah. After after four or five adhesion failures, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, just, of course. Uh, well, that's important. Assuming that all goes as it should, yeah, then you have your beautiful designed, uh, your your Venus de Strickland with crab claws, and the art world is forever changed. I mean, yeah, you right. have revolutionized a generation <laughs> of thinkers. Be, you might be staring at this creation thinking, what hath I wrought? <laughs> and you may have a, a kind of a, a, a metaphysical, uh, you know, dilemma on your hands about do I allow any other human to lay eyes upon this and um, risk them to lose sanity in the great Cthulhu mythos version? Uh, but but in a fun way, you know, in, yeah, in a, in a yay know. culture way. Yeah, it might be one of those ways where you you have that and you think, well, this needs to be shared to the rest of the world so that we can all wallow 
and the, <laughs> and the eldritch horror that we have produced. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so <laughs> I want to, I want to, I want to bring this discussion back uh, for c- completely non-nefarious purposes to forgeries. Oh boy! Right. So we talked about reproducibility. Yeah. And now we've introduced scanning. I wonder what you could do with the idea of uh, of scanning of works of art and endless reproducibility. Uh, okay, I have not heard any news stories of forgery artists creating and selling 3D scanned and printed copies on the illegal black market. Right. Well, with some things, it might be really hard to do because with, like, say, a large marble sculpture or something like that, your 3D printer can't make that. Uh, obviously. N- no, right. no. It, it can't I don't, print in marble for one thing. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> I don't but, know. Is there a marble printer out there? Not that, that I'm seems personally not aware possible, of. Yeah. It would be really, really, really hard to do. Yeah. Um. But but similar technology for some types of art does exist already on a commercial front. So probably mm. it's really only a matter of time before we've got some kind of update to the Thomas Crown affair that involves 3D printing. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, why did you <laughs> reference that? <laughs> well, there, there's, oh. there, there's, there are multiple... <laughs> incarnations of the Thomas Crown Affair. You don't have to necessarily grab one. I'm thinking of that horrible Pierce Brosnan abomination. Okay, Okay, please proceed. All right. So already on the market for the discerning, uh, but not a billionaire art collector, Fujifilm has created a process that will let you own a copy of a Van Gogh that's like accurate down to the original frame, the the three-dimensional brush strokes, the paint textures, and the scrawled notes on the back of the canvas. They are, wow. they are calling this process uh, reliefography. And each reproduction created with this process costs $34,000 or so. Um, uh, but that's still cheaper than, you know, a Van Gogh. Sure. So... Yeah, 30, 34 grand. I mean, that's that's like nothing. That's nothing in the in the world of a an original verified Van Gogh painting. So wait, how much does a real Van Gogh cost? Oh, I'm going to go on eBay. How much and does see. a Van Gogh for? Oh no, <laughs> eBay.com. <laughs> no, we're talking millions of dollars for an original Van Gogh. Now, let me ask you this, Lauren: If I were to buy such a a reproduction. Would it be convincing enough for me to to go around claiming, oh, this is the original Van Gogh? It would not. It would not fool an expert. It would probably mm. fool your friends. Yeah. Well, um, my friends are dumb. <laughs> it's okay. So that's not saying a lot. No. Well, um, I mean, they have to be friends with me. You gotta have a. You gotta aim low. <laughs> well, that is pretty cool. The idea that you can use these techniques not just to reproduce the the two dimensional aspect of a painting, but literally the, the brush strokes, the, the the texture of it. Oh, right, yeah. right. Um, the the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. Dam has been helping to fund the project and therefore has a three-year contract out on the technology with Fujifilm. But uh, but after that, it will hypothetically open up to other museums or possibly the public. I mean, the you know the really well-funded public. See, but... the fact that the Van Gogh Museum is is partnering with this should tell you that it's not a legitimate uh, uh, threat. For like right. a, a, a they not... truly convincing you art mean, forgery. It's not legitimately illegitimate. Well, I mean, it's not a threat. How about right. we put it that way? Uh, Whether yeah, yeah, legitimate or otherwise, it's not a threat. Uh, they don't consider it a threat. They're not worried about this becoming such a thing that, I mean, partially because it, it is such a process that they, they really have to work very directly. I mean, if you were going to break into a museum and 3Ds, it, it's not as simple as just waving a wand over. Yeah. Now, it is pretty amazing how how incredibly accurate a very thorough laser scan can be. But then when you think about it, it's light. You know, it's light. 
light is made up of these tiny little particles, tiny little wavelengths, and uh, and it can happen really, really fast. I'm always amazed, this is kind of a tangent, but I'm always amazed at how quickly light can uh, ascertain something like a, a, a scan of a barcode, for example, how it, it happens so quickly and you think, wow, that really is fast. But then you're thinking, oh, wait, I'm working with light. Speed of light. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's, so it really shouldn't surprise me that it goes yeah. quickly. A, a lot of these classic works are also behind cases or yes. I mean, it, it's it would be you would there have might, to might be large, burly people who are in ready the way to, to remove you forcibly. If yeah. you were to... Lots of security yeah. systems. Yeah. Um, but the, Fujifilm isn't even the only people who are working on this. A group within Canon has also been collaborating with Dutch researcher Tim Zaman to do essentially the same thing. Oh, cool. Yeah. So some artists and designers are creating restorations and facsimiles of even older works using 3D printing, uh, plus a few other techniques to kind of stitch everything together. Uh, there, there's this one design company called Factum Arte, or Art, or I don't know Italian. Yeah, Art I think, with I think, an E. I think it would be Arte. Okay, excellent. Um, That's working on a life-size copy of, of King Tut's tomb with the hope of eventually taking tourist pressure off of the original. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Oh, yeah, because with things like archaeological sites. Oh, yeah, every like, time you walk through it, you're ruining little bits of it. So. I, I would I would absolutely love to go through a a faithful reproduction like of, a loved reproduction yeah, yeah something like that's if, like a, a, a faithful reproduction of any historical site where i can feel like i can move through it and have the experience of what it would have been like to go through that space and also know that i am not simultaneously destroying on, it yeah destroying it <laughs> even on a just a, a minute level because uh, i think about walking through shakespeare's house oh, at sure. stratford upon avon and, and and loving that experience but then thinking yeah, just the fact that I'm here means that this building has suffered a little wear and tear. Now, granted, pretty much every part of that building has been replaced at some point or another, but that's a totally different philosophical it's discussion. It's the ship of Theseus yes, at this well, point. Which we've talked about in, an, <laughs> yeah. in other podcasts, or at least we've alluded to. So we, we won't go into that here. Uh, so, so that kind of thing is becoming a physical possibility. And furthermore, that same group is working with Sir John Soane's Museum in London to fabricate pieces based on an 18th century artist's etchings of ancient Roman artifacts. These things <laughs> only exist at the current moment in two-dimensional etchings. And... They're creating actual sculptures based on what this dude was drawing. Whoa. Okay, so it's is a three dimensional representation of a two dimensional representation of a three dimensional object. That that's pretty awesome. <laughs> and and like at that point, is, is it is it a forgery? Is it entirely <laughs> new art? Like I, what are it, they even doing? It's there? a copy of a copy of an original of a. That's uh, yeah. I mean that's that's an interesting. It's a brand new question. It's a brand new category. Exciting stuff that wouldn't have been possible without this kind of level of technology. Okay, so my angry art fan who wants things to be how they've always been, he is very convinced at this point, except he has one last reservation. Okay. He's like, does anybody else in the art world take digitally fabricated artwork seriously? I mean, is there any place in the world where this has actually been shown in a museum or something uh, like that? Short answer, yes. Yeah, there are actually quite a few museums that have shown some 3D printed stuff. 
or have incorporated 3D printing directly into installations. Well, let us talk about some of those, shall oh, we? Oh, shall we? All right. How about uh, this exhibit, uh, Out of Hand? This sounds interesting. Yeah, the at MAD, the Museum of Arts and Design in Manhattan. And it was an exhibit featuring not just 3D printed objects, but generally uh, digital fabrication. And okay. 3D printing was one of the aspects of that. Right. They also included a lecture series about the various methods that the artists used so that People could learn more about oh, digital cool. fabrication. Yeah. But a lot of their artworks are really cool. And I mean, I legitimately, I look at that and say, I want to see that just as much as I want to see traditional artworks. Oh, sure. And it was some terrific uh, functional pieces as well, right? Like they had like furniture or. Uh, they even had flatware, like flatware. Yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> strange Klingon silverware. Yeah. It, yeah, it kind of made me think of something that you would see in a science fiction film where, you know, you're the, the human is, sa- is sat down at the dinner table along with all the aliens. And <laughs> it's like, I don't know if that's a salad fork or an eviscerating knife. How I don't do know you what use this the is. seashells yeah. <laughs> kind, of, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Very good re- Or, good. uh. <laughs> Or, or or prestheses too, which um which I think that we talked a little bit about way when we first started the show. Some yeah. of the beautiful things that artists are doing to create wonderful original prostheses for customers. Yeah, yeah. so uh, it doesn't really make all that much sense for us to just try to describe how they look on here, but you should go look this up. Uh, it's the exhibit is called Out of Hand at the uh, Mad Museum website. You should look it up. They've got pictures of a lot of their. Things from this exhibit, it's really cool. Yeah. We'll try to remember to, to blog about it or post on social some of the links to this stuff. And there are other examples that have been featured in uh, some some museums of note, right? Like, yeah, one example I found was uh, it was called fractal.mgx, and this was at the Met. We talked about the Met earlier, um, but uh, it was it was design it was a 3D printed object yep. based on fractal patterns. Yeah, which are fractals are are representations of mathematical sets. Yeah. And uh this was a a table that married the art and beauty of fractals with the practicality of of furniture. So you had to oh, wow. you know you couldn't just make uh, a bunch of 3D printed fractals without making some sort of, of aesthetic changes so that you could make it a functional piece of furniture. It is not currently on display at the Met, but it is in their collection. Uh, and they've also have hosted 3D hackathons, which they allow uh, in, uh, visiting artists to come in and create uh, digital fabrication uh, exhibits and, and also to, to just communicate with the public about what it is they do and how it's done. Um, I've seen some great pictures of people just being able to walk through into an, an enormous room just filled with 3D printers. So imagine that that lovely little smell we get whenever we print a a thing here in the office, just filling an entire room because there's 30 of these oh, things yeah, going off at once. That's got to be the good stuff right there. Mm. Uh, and then there's also, I mean, it's not really like an official museum or anything, but there are a lot of festivals like Maker Faire. Uh, that have lots of, of folks using 3D printers in creative and artistic ways. And, uh, you know, Maker Faire, you think of it, it's it, usually I think of it as a sense of, of hackers who have built interesting stuff that does uh, something really cool. But in a lot of cases, it is really a work of art. It's not meant to necessarily be something that's practical. Or in some cases, it's both practical and art. You don't have to be one or the other. Oh, sure. And I I think that there's a perception within the community or within the greater Western culture that that kind of stuff is a craft rather than an art and certainly Mm. not a fine art. But I think that one of the beautiful things about all of this technology and bringing all of this technology into the kind of normal consumer level of price range is that it allows 
any normal person who has the drive to do so to create art. Yeah. And and that's and share it with people furthermore. I mean, imagine people who have these amazing visions of art, but not necessarily the capability of of bringing it into reality through the traditional means. They uh, It opens up a, a world that we would never be able to experience because we would never be able to see that person's vision uh, right, without this. Right. Or, or the access to the kind of education that some of the great masters would have had or, sure. you know. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really we're really excited about 3D printers and their place in art. And uh, yeah, don't don't be the grumpy old man uh, that Joe was. Uh, <laughs> the angry Joe was. Yeah, the angry Joe was. Yeah. Be the be the be the very mellow, accepting man that Joe is now. In another podcast coming up this week, we're also going to talk about another aspect of the angry old man and art, uh, who more generally just thinks that art should be low tech. So, yeah. if you're interested in that topic. Check us out again. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely be chatting about uh, that and having a lot of angry old man type of arguments. Uh, I might even throw in my own version of the angry old Joe, which is really just Jonathan. Yeah, that's just regular <laughs> anyway, Jonathan. So, yeah. guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, maybe there's something that uh, you've always wondered about, about, you know, what is this going to be like in the future? And you want to hear our take on it. Or you just maybe want us to, to really dive into some specific topic let us know send us a message on facebook or twitter or google plus our handle at all three is fw thinking we look forward to hearing from you and we'll talk to you again really soon for more on this topic and the future of technology visit forwardthinking.com Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my! Look at that! He is... And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. 
From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.